the quarter's results actually were helpful in so far as it allowed investors to say, well, maybe, you know, there is a slowdown, but a slowdown does not necessarily mean a death blow. Welcome to the 13th episode of our deep dive series on Canadian bank earnings. Today, we're covering the fourth quarter 2023 bank earnings announcements, and we're going to return here each quarter on this channel to update you on the latest financial results. My name is Daniel Stanley. I'm an ETF specialist at BMO Exchange Traded Funds, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Chris Heeks, who's portfolio manager for all of BMO's equity and multi-asset ETFs, and Sora Movahedi. Managing Director of Financials Research at BMO Capital Markets. And today we're going to cover the recent bank earnings announcements and what they mean for investors and the Canadian economy, as well as looking at different ETF strategies that give you exposure to the Canadian banks. So without further ado, Chris and Sorab, thank you for taking the time to join me today. And Sorab, I want to start with you. It seems fitting that this is our 13th Canadian Bank podcast, and I think it was last week, Scotia came out of the gate uh, with a big EPS miss versus consensus. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And in general, how did the banks do this quarter? It's good to be back. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, the fourth quarter earnings kicked off a little bit over a week ago, I guess, with Scotia. Scotia would have been the low point. So that's, I guess, the good news. I think it improved thereafter with the rest kind of reporting. And I think the stock price reactions probably to the results being appropriate and warranted uh, in all cases. Across the big six banks, uh, operating earnings to common shareholders came in around $13 billion. So that's a big number, even bigger when you annualize it for the quarter, you know, north of $52 billion on an annualized basis. And those would be operating numbers, obviously. But, uh, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is it was the sixth consecutive quarter of year-over-year earnings declines across the industry. And, of course, again, it wouldn't be uniform across every one of the banks, but from a from a system-wide perspective. And uh, the culprit here really is a normalization in credit provisioning levels. We had gone through an off-the-charts type uh, building of uh, reserves in response to COVID. We've had a period of abnormally low loan loss reserves as uh, those numbers were coming down, banks were drawing down on them. And now we're going through a period of renormalization. Nothing spotty, nothing spiky, but it's just, you know, you go from 35 basis points to 37 basis points to 40 basis points. You know, it's just a gradual. I'll call it, uh, think of it as Cape Town's tabletop mountain, right? Like we're going to have that flattening of the credit cycle as opposed to something a bit more spiky. And I think that normalization in credit is happening at a time that expenses are feeling the persistent impact of inflation. I think uh, most of the banks will say that concept of the great resignation certainly didn't live there too long. And so a lower attrition rate is resulting in some banks also having to take action around rebaselining their expenses, certainly as it relates to their staffing levels. And then, of course, you know, we've had this coordinated effort globally uh, by central banks to fight inflation, slow down the economy, and banks tend to be levered plays on the economy. So the revenue environment has been a bit more subdued, whether it's 
slower loan growth. Now the lagged impact of uh, higher rates, you know, hurting the bank's funding costs and the net interest margin, or this really prolonged period of um, um, uh, uh, cycl- it's cyclical, but uh, one of the longer cycles we've seen in uh, capital markets type businesses, you know, uh, new issue and capital expenditure plans and the like. And, and probably all of that is going to be less, I want to be clear that we're not saying uh, it's time to back up, but it's certainly back up the truck, but it feels like things are increasingly priced in. And and so we we believe that uh, we're at an inflection point and inflection points usually tend to be points of minimum, not maximum confidence. Uh, so so I, I suppose even since last uh, set of uh, podcasts we had here, I think we're less negative uh, when we think about the outlook. Maybe I'll just finish it off by saying I'm a race car fan. So think of it as a pit a pit stop we're going into over the next uh, you know couple of quarters they're an important and necessary part of the race uh, some will have easier pit stops than others you know if you've done your capital allocation decisions in the past you come in you are focused on getting the benefits out of your expense uh, initiatives make sure you don't have any undue risk and you you're looking forward to rejoining the race you know, as soon as possible without kind of messing up the pit stop. Some banks will have maybe a time penalty assessed to them. You know, we think, uh, you know, TD may actually still have to deal with this Department of Justice type issues, which will probably be a bit of a uh, time, you know, call it a delay in capital allocation. Some banks may have to do more than just a, you know, tire swap and refueling. You know, in the case of Scotiabank, you know, there might be a bit more involved you may have to change the nose as well and and so you know there some of the banks will have different issues but we think the race will you know they will rejoin the race and when they rejoin the race i think um uh, as investors look beyond 2024 things will look a lot more interesting to them uh, as we sit here right now Thanks for that, Sarab. And and you sort of mentioned early on as well that Scotia, in terms of the earnings, was the low point, and that if you look at the market reactions, uh, that that clearly reflected that. And and Chris, it's a good segue into our discussion because you, you actually mentioned, I think, in an email you sent out to ourselves and our team that you had a chart showing the daily price performances of all the the banks uh, when they came out with their earnings, and the vast majority of them were were quite positive. Which is interesting because actually, Chris, if you sort of if you bought the BMO Equal Weight Bank ETF ZEB at the highs back in February, uh, we all know you are still sitting on some paper losses. And yet, what's interesting, if you look at our flows and our ETFs, ZEB is the number one ETF and net inflows this year. I I think we've seen over $1 billion uh, as of the end of October flow into that ETF. And and I do suspect, Chris, that a a lot of those flows, those inflows are driven by tax loss selling. We haven't talked about tax loss selling on this call. I'm wondering if you can sort of describe the process of tax loss selling and why ZEB is a great tool to use to harvest losses for tax purposes. For sure. Thanks, Dan. And uh, yeah, good to be here again. Um, you know, it's it's, it's really um, ETFs can be used, uh, you know, as very efficient tax loss trade vehicles to, to take on, put off 
uh, exposures in non-registered accounts. Um, you know, what is a tax loss trade? You know, obviously, if you are holding something that's in a loss position, um, if you sell that asset, you have to stay out of it for 30 days. You know, you can realize a loss and crystallize a loss that can, you know, offset some gains, perhaps in another side of your portfolio. And, you know, with, with the S&P is up 19% this year, you know, perhaps you have some gains, you know, in other sides of your portfolios. Um, I think banks year to date are, they've now carved out a positive return year to date, which is, which is nice to see. And I think, uh, you know, comment on the inflection point, you know, definitely um, can apply there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Dan, as you mentioned, uh, ZEB is the top equity ETF at BMO. You know, if you add ZEB and our covered call Canadian banks at WB, over a billion dollars. So investors have come in this year. Uh, you know, perhaps they're sitting at a higher uh, cost level than where ZEB is trading in the market. ZEB is trading in the $32 range as we go to taping, $32.50 or so. Hit a high of $42, uh, you know, several months ago. So, so there has, you know, Perhaps uh, if you're sitting on a paper loss, uh, you know, the ETF is a great vehicle to do that. Um, we would always obviously say, you know, an investor should consult their own tax advice prior to doing any trade. Um, just something to bear in mind that going from one ETF to another, um, where the, well, those ETFs track the same index, generally that would not be considered a disposition. So that's one little nuance. Uh, but if you're going from, say, single banks into ETFs, um, you know, that would be a disposition and vice versa. Um, going from ZEB to ZWB and back and forth would be a disposition as well, because you're going from that underlying equity strategy to a different strategy cover call. So, uh, yeah, ETFs provide a great tool to, to take advantage of that. And, you know, perhaps, you know, as we look out and with an inflection point, and certainly, like you said, Dan, the market sentiment was pretty good on earnings days. And even even Scotia, which was the negative one, I mean, it had recaptured all that it lost in about three days after the earnings announcement, which which I thought was kind of remarkable. So as banks, perhaps, you know, over the ne in the next quarters to come, look like they're going to be doing better. You know, there is an opportunity to harvest, lock in a, you know, a loss now, uh, something investors could look at and, um, and, and crystallize that loss and, um, and uh, reset their exposure going forward. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. Yeah, and and I love your point about the ETF is is a tool. We we often talk about and look at the end of the day, an ETF is is a tool to use alongside your cash securities. It's a low cost delivery vehicle, and and you know as you get, start getting into this time of year, that the the tax loss selling har or tax loss harvesting is a great way to use that ETF. Sorab, I want to come back to you for the next question, and and want to come back to the issue that we've talked about on many calls. Uh, you know, real estate and the banks. Uh, you noted, I believe, in one of your reports that much of Scotia's EPS miss was the result of higher provisions for credit losses versus your estimate. I think the big question that many people have, and you certainly see it in the news these days, is how buffered. Are bank profits from losses on the mortgage book? I totally understand investor angst when it comes to uh, mortgages and the Canadian banks, in particular because it is the largest proportion of their loan book, right? So I think across the group, we're talking about 1.7 trillion plus or minus. That probably means 50% of their overall loan portfolio, 25% of their assets. So it's a very 
important and prominent uh, part of the balance sheet. And if you are worried about uh, higher rates, ability of borrowers to roll over their mortgages at renewal, remember in Canada, one of the things we have, which is a little bit different from the US is we have typically five-year term mortgages. So by definition, uh, the book will reprice over a five-year plus or minus, you know, uh, time frame. Whereas in the U.S., some may be sitting uh, with, you know, low mortgage rates that still have 15, 20 years, so to speak, left left on them. So the, the concern is valid, but I think one of the things that we have historically seen with this asset class or this loan, loan portfolio in the Canadian banks is... Uh, a variety of features that make us believe in the probability of outcomes. Uh, any of these worries are quite still far out in the tail uh, of the potential outcomes, right? So we are a recourse country. The loan to value associated with these assets are at inception, usually, you know, 80% or lower, certainly given the seasoning of the book, both in terms of uh, principal and interest payments, but also in terms of house price appreciation, maybe the effective loan to value, if you think about it on a back book basis, is still in the 50% range, depending on the bank. Um, so the worry with when it comes to the banks, I think, initially is always that, wow, this time might be different, and there will be a spike in loan losses, and the banks will have to reserve quite substantially more than uh, than what we're used to. You know, maybe similar or akin to the circumstances that transpired in the U.S. with uh, you know global financial crisis and the subprime uh, lending situation that they had. Uh, but then, once the cooler heads, so to speak, prevail, and uh, uh, you know, there is an assessment of the risk and the probability outcome of those risks, then it becomes more of an income statement consideration. All right, if we have slower uh, loan growth elsewhere because the consumer is going to be responsible towards, you know, uh, refinancing the mortgage, then does that contribute to a slower economic activity? You know, we'll have to drive the car one more year. Maybe we take fewer trips, we're not going out for dinner as much, you know, some of that discretionary spending, which contributes obviously to the vibrancy of the economic activity will be a bit more subdued. So we think that's more the case. I think if you look at Scotia and quite candidly, all the other banks this quarter would have to varying degrees told you that uh, it's more the outlook for the Canadian consumer, but not in the mortgage book, but more so on the unsecured stuff, credit cards and unsecured personal line of credit, which you know, there is a greater propensity to fall behind on uh, than on your mortgage payment. So some of those are being kind of um, um, are attracting attention. And I think uh, appropriately so uh, being uh, preemptively reserved against. I think in the case of Scotia, it was most pronounced. Um, but remember, we don't worry so much about a single quarter move, but we kind of worry, or we look at where have we ended up, right? And uh, where we've ended up is we've the banks now have allowances for credit losses. Um, by our estimate, you know, at a bank like Scotia, you know, those allowances on a risk-adjusted basis relative to the loan book that they're running is probably uh 
very conservative, <laughs> should give them some uh, breathing room in the coming year. But I think all the banks are actually, you know, well reserved for the risk they're running. Um, that doesn't mean to say they won't have to add to their allowances, but we don't think there's going to be a shock coming at us. As the sentiment risk has improved, you've seen over the last month or so, the Canadian bank stock prices have have uh, have kind of reacted favorably. But from a valuation perspective, whether it's price to book, price to earnings, and in a valuation level, let's say on the Canadian bank index, is still around the levels we would have seen during COVID pandemic peaks, during the um, global financial crisis. And those would have been in their own respective ways, one in 100 year type exogenous events that really tested the viability of the system and you know questioned the viability of the businesses. So we we are totally comfortable that that's not a concern this go around, certainly given the level of allowances. And so uh, I, I find it interesting that we have much better capital levels, much higher reserve levels, probably better liquidity position, yet we're trading at the types of levels we were trading at Albeit in the last few weeks, we've had a bit of a reprieve on that at, at levels that we were last trading at, you know, during those one in 100 type year uh, uh, events. And so I think we are starting to, again, we're not backing up, like I said earlier, but we feel like we are near that inflection point. And I think the quarter's results actually were helpful in in insofar as it allowed, I think, investors to Say, well, maybe, you know, there is a slowdown, but a slowdown does not necessarily mean a death blow, if you will, from a from a balance sheet perspective. And if they can handle the income statement. And I think as we get into some of the questions, you know, as we start looking beyond 24 and into 25, there's reasons for optimism. Thanks, Sarab. And it's good. You know, you talk about these inflection points and typically at inflection points, you can have you know, markets bounce around a little bit. You can have some flat markets as well. And and I know, guys, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, one of the benefits of the banks, uh, you know, during flat markets is the dividend yield. Now, uh, Chris, I want to come over to you because we recently launched a series of what we call defined outcome ETFs, uh, one of which is the BMO Canadian Bank Accelerator ETF. The symbol is ZEBA. Uh, an interesting product if you expect bank stock prices to be flat. Maybe can you talk to us a little bit about how this product makes sense in that kind of environment if you do think bank stocks will be flat for a little while? I wouldn't say flat so much as I would say moderately bullish. And uh, But let's get into it because, you know, the, the segue of, um, you know, Im- improving outlook you know, suits this style of uh, this product. So, you know, what these are uh, structured outcome ETFs um, using options to get a little bit of a different return stream. And so we launched some on the defensive side, but this one is really more on the dialing up price return side. So, um, you know, sometimes we see, you know, investors will consider using leverage in the portfolio. Obviously, the leverage is a double-edged sword uh, to the upside and to the downside. And the idea with the accelerators is having uh, an accelerated zone where you can have more than 1x returns on the upside, uh, but not take any incremental risk on the downside. How this is done is we start, you know, in the case of ZEBA, we own ZEB. So we own that underlying ETF. We collect the dividend yield on that that ETF, which is, which is a major source of return with Canadian banks. 
then what we do is we use the options market to uh, modify that return stream and we purchase a call option at the money and that provides another source of upside exposure and to um, to finance the, the the cost of that purchased option we sell two options out of the money and those two options will create essentially a cap on returns uh, but those two options that are sold will will offset the cost of that more valuable option purchased uh, so what you end up with is you know a strategy where you have and I should say we do this on a quarterly basis and it continually resets every quarter. We just launched it. It's going to come up to a reset date at the end of December. And then we're going to reset again out towards the end of March um, at that time. Um, but yeah, the the overall, the, the payoff profile is one where if you hold it kind of through, um, if banks go down, you would have the same downside as the banks, so called one-to-one downside. But if banks go up, um, there's that potential to uh, have price returns uh, in excess of the underlying banks, because especially if they're in this accelerated zone between where uh, where you start, so where that call option was purchased, and between where those two call options were sold, uh, in that accelerated zone, you can have more than uh, 1x returns, and, and in some cases up to 2x returns um, if, if it's within that zone. Of course, what you're giving up is if banks rally, say, substantially, it would go through that cap and then you would forego on some return, you know, if you had a real substantial uh, return. Um, but, you know, it can be, again, um, it's an interesting way to um, elevate price returns um, without increasing uh, risk. Uh, you know, in markets like November, where, you know, uh, ZDB was up over 8% in November, and, and as we talked about, a very, very good uh, sentiment improving backdrop across global equities in general, um, but certainly had a positive impact on the banks. You know, markets like that can help uh, a product such as this, you know, kind of achieve, you know, uh, you know, even greater returns. And so it's a, you know, return generating solution can add a little bit to price returns. Um, you know, if banks are up, you know, 20, 30% in a quarter, you, they're probably, you'll be forgoing some of that price return. So if you're exceptionally bullish, particularly in the short term, I think it makes sense to stick with ZEB. But, you know, in, in markets like these, where it's a little bit choppy up and down, uh, but per, perhaps we're turning the corner with Canadian banks is something investors could consider. At the end of the day, it's a great, it's another tool in the toolkit. And uh, I, I do like that you, you collect the dividend on it and it, it just adds to you know different ways that you can get exposure to the uh, to the Canadian banks. Hey, Sorab, I want to come back to you for the next question because you know on on our last podcast you you had mentioned the banks would start looking uh, more interesting as investors turn their attention to 2025 earnings per share. You know you've sort of alluded to this here that that we're at an inflection point. Can I ask, do, do you have your 2025 EPS estimates for the banks and have your views changed on the, the timing of the recovery for the banks? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a thank you for uh, holding me to account. Uh, we actually introduced uh, our 25 estimates as we have uh, reviewed the Q4 estimates or uh, Q4 results of the banks. And, uh, and my views haven't really changed. I mean, to, you know, if if you look at our uh, you know if you look at the exit velocity for the banks in 2023, each one of the banks would have obviously had their own issues. I I feel like everyone's happy to put 2023 behind them. 
I think as we think about the year ahead, like I said, we think about it as a bit more of a pit lane type uh, situation. You know, we need obviously the benefits of some of these restructuring charges to kind of take hold. I don't think that's going to happen right away, but we will see that throughout the year. I think we need, and I think we're getting a bit greater clarity on the macro backdrop, whether it's uh, rates. I think, you know, I'm not I'm not a rates uh, guy, but it certainly feels like the anticipation of further rate hikes has kind of mellowed, and maybe we start getting some of those rate declines. I think that in and of itself, believe it or not, will be good for credit quality. We talked a little bit uh, about um, the mortgage renewal cycle in Canada and uh, you know whether or not lower rates will take some pressure off. Of course, it will. And so that will be a net positive. And I think you know this Friday, we will have an update from the regulator in Canada as to where they would like to take the minimum capital requirements. So I think between rates and the economy and then add the regulation, which really has created a degree of uncertainty, generally speaking, and certainly in Canada with with the minimum requirements, I think those will become market clearing events. I'm not suggesting they're positive or negative catalysts, but it's one uncertainty removed uh, as to where the bank's capital levels have to be. So I suspect as we look through 2024, I don't want to call it a transition year, but it will end up being probably a year of two halves. First half, still a bit of a lingering effect of of what we've been experiencing. But by by the time we get to the second half, for examples, banks that have uh, drips on dividend reinvestment plans, that banks that are slowly issuing shares, they may be in a position to actually stop those drip programs. Certainly, stop the discount on those drip programs. And so, you know, I think uh, as we as we look through twenty four into twenty twenty five. There's still lots of unknowns, but with, I think, reasonable and probably not overly aggressive assumptions, we see the banks now getting back from an EPS growth perspective within their medium-term target levels. So the banks are generally targeting you know, 5 to 10% EPS growth, in some cases 7% plus. It kind of varies. But we think in 25, over 24, you could be looking at those sorts of um, EPS growth numbers, right? And I think it's a little bit of a uh, of a tough ask to say to someone, "Hey, today, why don't we price them off of 25?" It becomes easier when you've seen at least first quarter results out of 24, which hopefully will be a confirmation as to the types of trajectory we're expecting from them. And so, you know, obviously, it's harder to buy something that is levered to the economy when the economy is contracting and the earnings are coming down. It's a lot easier when you actually have valuation on your side. Like I said, I think we are trading at valuation levels that are synonymous with real one in 100 year type worries, but we don't have nearly the same sorts of kind of uh, issues with the bank. So if you have valuation on your side and you actually get into a situation where earnings Growth is going to be closer to the medium term, and maybe there's even heavens forbid there's going to be a risk of, you know, sell side and everyone actually revising upwards those uh, earnings estimates. Then I think it lines up well for uh, for the bank stock to work, and both in terms of earnings estimates driving them higher, and and, and in terms of a bit of a re-rating uh, to take them higher. I think to get to historically we would have been, you know, we've done thirteen podcasts. I think you know probably we would have come back. If you review some of the historic podcasts, we've talked about the typical range being in the 10 to 12 times multiple, for example, on a forward PE basis. 
for the Canadian banks. You know, if you look at our target prices and you look at our 2025 estimates, you know, that points to a bank index trading at around 10, 10.2 times. So I don't think we're being aggressive on the valuation multiple. And I think if we can find ourselves in a situation where indeed the trajectory of events is consistent with how we are forecasting it, then we could actually get non-domestic flows into the Canadian equities, including Canadian banks as well. And then I think, you know, those upper bounds of 11, 12 times could be in play. But even right now with just domestic, primarily domestic uh, shareholders kind of uh, maybe increasing their weights towards the banks uh, on a 25 basis, we think uh, that we could kind of see a bit of a re-rating as well as then picking still up the dividends. And I should have mentioned that all the banks that were expected to increase dividends this quarter, in fact, did so. So that, you know, I think the commitment to the dividends will will be uh, unwavering. And, uh, and so, you know, you pick up the earnings, you pick up the dividends, and you have re-rating potential on your side. But I think you have to just still be just a tiny bit more patient, maybe call it another quarter or two before, you know, the, um, uh, we are kind of the, the party, so to speak, begins. Good things come to those who wait. And uh, there's a nice dividend there as you wait, that's for sure. Um, actually, Sarab, I, w- I want to come back to that analogy you've been using to Formula One racing. You know, la- last spring, I think it was in the wake of the US banking crisis, we, we, we talked a little bit about the risk of more regulation coming down the pipeline. And I guess to use your analogy, that's like the, the F1 governing body changing the rules completely. Forget about a pit stop. Um, you know, I think it was this week, the heads of JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, some of the big banks were, were appearing uh, in front of US lawmakers in Congress to push back on some proposed new regulations. It's also interesting to see if you look at you know ETFs like ZUB, the BMO Equal Weight U.S. Bank Hedge to CAD ETF, it's it's down year to date versus ZEB, the Canadian one, which is Chris, you've pointed out, has has been uh, pretty positive. My question, and this is for both of you, but Chris, I want to start with you to answer this one: is you know is the regulatory environment in the U.S. really responsible for this differential in, in returns, or is there, is there something else going on here? So, Chris, why don't you start with you? I'll let Zarab dive a little more deeply into it. I mean, I, I would just say certainly it's a headwind, obviously, and 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 it's 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 a bit of a headwind. It's not something that's going to knock all the winds out of the sails, but it's it's a challenge. But you know, I think there's I think there's more to it. And I'll just kind of maybe just have a couple comments from an overall portfolio and market perspective. Is you know, again in 2023, we've had a very very narrow market in terms of what has worked. So I mentioned the S and P was up 19. percent I think if you take something like the the top 10 companies away from it, it's barely positive. And kind of echoing some of the things we said about Canadian banks, you know, I'm looking at some of the valuations on the U.S. banks. They look to me, exceptionally attractive. The dividend yield is now attractive on U.S. banks. Uh, dividend growth is happening. Return on equity is pretty decent. So, um, you know, I think investors have potentially overlooked some of some other exposures besides tech. And I think U.S. banks perhaps could fit into that. Uh, if you look at valuation discounts versus even the S&P 500, which is a tech-heavy index, um, you know, they've really widened out in the past uh, few years and and are, are you know, kind of all, almost sitting at the extreme. So um, I'm not sure if I totally answered your question on, on, on regulation, but, you know, I think certainly that's a headwind, but I think there's kind of greater investor 
perhaps inefficiencies or just temporary dislocations. Um, you know, I saw a research piece and um, not so long ago, and and it was just pointing out, you know, you you can't have the S and P or broad indexes taking off without financials kind of participating as well, and, and we haven't really seen that in the U.S. Um, or, or arguably Canada. We're just starting to see it now. So, um, so you know, so I think you know it's something that investors can consider. You know, I always say U.S. banks is obviously a higher risk investment than Canadian banks. You don't need as much of it in your portfolio. There's a little bit of kick there already with them, but um, when you look at some of the metrics, I think it's interesting. So, despite you know regulatory challenges, I think um, you know they're worth taking a look at. I think U.S. banks tend to be higher rated than the Canadian banks, so we can't lose sight of that. I do think banking, generally speaking, is a thinner margin business. So you do need, I'll call it, uh, you know, the benefit of leverage to get a decent return on equity if you're an investor. So every time the regulators tighten the screw, you know, uh, the primary area, not strictly, but, you know, it ends up being on capital levels. And every time they take capital levels higher, they're basically telling you, you have to make more return on assets with no benefits, so to speak, from leverage. And I think when you're in an environment, and I think the Canadian banks and the larger U.S. banks, uh, my partner covers those, but the larger U.S. banks would be more diversified. Canadian banks are diversified. So so that diversification uh, allows you to weather storms a little bit better, better than some of the more, let's say, regionals that could be a little bit less less diversified. And so... Uh, I think the regulation in the U.S. and in Canada has weighed on bank valuations, certainly has weighed on investor sentiment. And uh, like I said, we'll we'll look in Canada, for example, to this Friday to see where our regulator takes the minimum regulatory requirements. But, you know, higher or not, I think will actually be a, a clearing event because it's one degree of uncertainty removed. I think investors are worried about a more muscular regulate, regulatory environment. I think we, we've talked about this over the last, uh, you know, on this call over the last uh, few years that regulators will not let a crisis go to waste. And I think Silicon Valley was a bit of a emboldening of that. But I also think banks know how to deal with regulation and they will obviously adapt accordingly. And I think investors are becoming a little bit more, they have now reflected the uncertainty associated with the uh, with the re- regulation around Canadian banks and the types of multiples they're willing to put on them, right? So, so now what we need is with the newly defined kind of regulatory sandbox, we now need a rebound in, in economic recovery, a rebound in cyclical capital markets type related businesses. And, and and I think that you know that revenue ultimately the work we have done regulation matters obviously uh, outlook on rates and the economy and all that matters from what sort of a discount rate or multiple you want to apply but ultimately what I think drives total shareholder return for the Canadian banks at least the work we've done over time I'm not talking about one quarter or the other is revenue growth per share <laughs> so you know if we are in an environment where the top line is growing. I think it it gives you a lot more degrees of freedom to deal with unintended or unanticipated uh, circumstances. We are dealing, we've been in an environment where that revenue growth has not been there at a time where cost of compliance is going up at a time that regulatory capital requirements are going up at a time that 
like I said, inflation is allowing or disallowing for positive operating leverage because expenses are growing faster than revenue. So like I think if we if we just get through this part of the cycle and I hope we're right and we are in that kind of pit lane and we're coming out of it, then we are going to start talking about growth again. We are going to worry about not just the next six months, but 12, 18, 24 months. We really have to visualize where we're going to be 12 months from now, 18 months from now. That's where the prices are going to be. And uh, and I think, again, uh, m- maybe we're being overly optimistic, but 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 I'm, I'm cooling our kind of enthusiasm near term, but I do feel like we're going to rejoin the race. And this is going to be a cyclical downturn as opposed to a catastrophic one. And uh, as we make it through, the banks that have been able to deploy capital will probably be better positioned than the other ones. But all of the big six, we expect are going to rejoin the game or rejoin the race. uh, um, And probably towards the second half of uh, 2024 and beyond. I think that's a great note to end on. Clearly, uh, there is an inflection point here. I love your comment about being less negative. And then, Chris, your comments about, you know, look at the market reaction uh, in terms of the prices. And, you know, typically we know markets climb a wall of worry. So I think that's a great way to uh, to end this podcast today. Chris and Sorab, thank you uh, very much for your insights again today. As a reminder to the audience, you can get exposure to Canadian banks via ZEB, which is our BMO Equal Weight Canadian Bank Index ETF. Uh, You can also get exposure via ZWB or ZEBA, the new product that uh, Chris mentioned earlier. And you can get exposure to our U.S. bank ETFs via ZUB or ZBK. Those are the BMO Equal Weight U.S. Bank Index ETFs. If you have any questions, please visit the ETF Center at BMOETFS.com. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in, and please join us in mid-March for the next update on Canadian banks. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Commissions, management fees, and expenses, if any, all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus before investing. Exchange-traded funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. BMO Global Asset Management is a brand name under which BMO Asset Management Inc. and BMO Investments Inc. operate.